The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Do we need to do anything with these candles? We do. So they didn't train me on this. I don't know if it, if it might work. We would have to have a safety meeting and all kinds of things, but I guess they feel comfortable. All right, so I do consider it a privilege. I teach, uh, Jeremy mentioned I'm the president of the college. I'm gonna take these off so I won't be able to see anymore, but uh, I can read now. Um, I've been at the college for 10 years. I've been teaching theology there for a long time, 15 years, I guess. And Jeremy, kind of gave me a title. Last week, he talked about God. What? You tell me what he said. God God sees. So what I'm going to talk about this week is God pursues. And again, it's kind of like sees. These are common words that we use. And I I don't want us to miss the depths of what those mean. And so I want to take a little bit of time and delve into just what that word means. But then the strategy of the teaching uh, is going to be maybe a little bit different. It's not going to be a sermon. I'm not a preacher. I'm a teacher. So I have to throw my little teaching twang into it. Um, So I'm going to give you seven puzzle pieces. And at the end, you're going to try and put all these puzzle pieces together, and it should create an image. And the theme or the thesis of this sermon is going to be that image, okay? So you with me? You can, you can take part or not. I just ask that you stay awake. Um, it should be fun. Uh, I enjoyed it. I uh, enjoyed preparing it. And I'm going to be bouncing around in the Bible. I'm going to be skipping a lot of things. We're really looking at things at a 30,000-foot level to try and cover uh, everything that we need to cover. And I have 42 minutes, so let's get going. So when you think of um, pursuit, uh, there's a lot of things I think that come to our minds theologically. And obviously God pursues us. That's a a no-brainer. But one of the other things, maybe more practically, or not even practically, but from an entertainment standpoint, I think of the uh, Taken series with Liam Nelson and most people probably are familiar with those movies, and what happens? So the bad guys come, they take his daughter, they go wherever they go, and he does what? He pursues them. And what does that mean? Well, if you look in the Webster Dictionary, it means a whole lot of things, but I'm going to boil those down into, into two primary purposes, or too many, too many definitions, two definitions. One, he pursues uh, in the sense of uh, capturing or overtaking, and then on the second, there's a goal, there's a purpose behind it. And so uh, I think you can see how that would fit in that film, and I don't want to go any farther with that film, so we'll just put that aside. But now let me say, for, so for instance, with my marriage, with my wife. So I have pursued my wife. She has pursued me. We have captured one another, and what I'm going to do is use the word affections, for that. 
So I have set my affections on my wife, and she has set her affections on me. So that's the first half. And then the second half would be the, the purpose. And so for us, the purpose is marriage. The purpose is God's plan, biblical plan for marriage. It's to grow together synergistically around the person and work of Christ. And so her love, her pursuit, her affections towards me influence me. They change me. They grow me into that synergistic part of what a marriage is all about. I become a better man because of her affections and her love. In, in the same way, she becomes a better woman through that process. Does that make sense? Does everybody buy into that? Well, the same can be said of Jesus, or of God, I mean. And probably in the most obvious text that comes to mind, for me anyway, when we think of God pursuing us, is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him shall be saved and have eternal life. So the affection is what? He loved us. And the purpose? To be saved and have eternal life. And when you start looking at it, you peel that back, at least for me when I was preparing for the sermon, I, I realized the depth of this. Now I've looked at lots of lists of the attributes and the nature of God, and I've studied all of these things and read books on it, and I don't remember, remember seeing pursuit as one of God's attributes. And yet, it not only is one of his in, embedded aspects, but he created us to do it. It's a way that we mimic him. I, I want to be careful, being a theology guy, that I'm not overstepping bounds, that I don't want to say that's part of the image of God. But I think in, in many ways we could, we could probably say that it is. Um, we mimic him in the sense that so much of our lives are about pursuing. We can pursue relationships. We can pursue a uh, job. We can pursue an education. We can pursue all kinds of things, right? You don't go through a day of your life without pursuing something. So with that in mind, dwell on that today. And, and you know, keying off of what Jeremy said, we need to capture these ideas and bring them under the kingdom. We need to bring them into our faith. If we can look at pursuing as a theological concept and not just an action that we do by nature, it will have a huge impact in our life, right? So, all that is the introduction. Let me, uh, let me move now into more of the body of the sermon. Now, uh, using my wife and I as an example again, God loves us, God pursues us in a very similar way. He pursues us with this um, affection. Um, and yet, her and I pursue each other. But God pursues her, me, you, every one of us individually. And every human being that, is a, that has cried out, Abba, he has pursued. So that's where the similarity stops. So to understand God's priority or purpose behind his pursuit, we need to understand the second half of the definition, which is the goal. 
So what's the purpose of God's pursuit? So let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to look at the big picture of God's plan. So we'll be in Ephesians 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 10. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms and with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Verse 10, so this is, this is the kingdom purpose to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So there's a ton of theology in that, and, and we, I don't know how long ago, but I know that's, that's been preached through. I just want to kind of sum it up for you that this plan that, that the triune God, the Godhead, determined in eternity past, which means before, the, before he said, let there be light, before he created, this plan was in place. He had, God had chosen, predestined people to be sons and daughters. He had predestined, I don't want to step on anybody's theology, he had predestined those that would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ to be his sons and daughters. Going a step farther, he created a new humanity through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that new humanity is called the church. So let's skip over to chapter 2, and let me read uh, from 6 to 10. And God raised us up, up us being the church with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not for yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created to be in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So again, just really briefly, we now, as we sit here, we are also seated with Christ in the heavens. We are in the kingdom. The kingdom is inaugurated. Jesus, wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is, right? He's the king. And we live in two realms. We live in the realm of his kingdom in heaven, and we also live in this world that is broken, but that the kingdom is now permeating through us. And we have been created, as verse 10 says, in Christ Jesus to do what? 
to do good works, which God, again, prepared way back when for us to do. And then lastly, skip over to chapter 3. What's the church about? Well, we'll just say verse 10, in his intent was that now through us, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So it doesn't say a lot of things, and it may say a thing that you didn't understand, but one of the primary purposes of the church is to display God's manifold wisdom, his attributes, his plan, his, his who he is by nature, not to necessarily just each other, not to just necessarily humanity, but to who? To the spiritual authorities, to the heavenly realms, and in a sense to all the universe. So we as the church were created, and this, this plan was generated, again, before creation, that this, looking through time, they would create, the Godhead would create this thing called the church. And a church would be this witness, okay? That's known as the cosmic gospel, if you will, okay? We oftentimes look more at John 3.16 as the gospel, and that's great. It's a slice of the cosmic gospel. And the cosmic gospel, then, is going to be the first piece of the puzzle. So for those of you that are playing along, that's the first piece of the puzzle. Um, and, and pushing on that a little farther, when God, when God pursued Mike, and Mike accepted that pursuit, and, and I was overtaken by the Lord and, and his affections, um, I now am a part of that cosmic plan, right? So again, God tying the two definitions of pursuit together, he pursued me with his affections. He made it so irresistible to me that I responded with my affections. So he set his affections on me, which then created me to set my affections on him. But in that process, I now am a part of this cosmic gospel program, as you are, as heritage is, as is every person, every woman, every man, every child that has called out Abba Father, we are a part of this plan. Let me, so that's kind of the program side of, of the definition. Now let me focus a little bit more on the affections side. Um, again, we, we use the word pursuit and we all encourage one another that God's pursuing you, that God is there. And I just want to, I just want to be a pastoral impact for a little bit, play Jeremy's role for a moment, and really impress upon you the depths that God is willing to do and to go to show his affections to you, to um, woo you, if you will, into the flock. So I'm looking at Psalm 119, and I'm going to read the last three verses. So this is one of the most, it is the longest psalm, but it's also one of the the most amazing psalms, um, grammatically, from a literary standpoint. Um, but this is written by David. David was a man after God's own heart, but David had uh, several issues with sin, with righteousness, right? He fell multiple times. And so he touches on that in this very last part of this wonderful psalm. So 174, 
I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. And then he says this, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. So there's two things I want to say. One, this idea of sheep, of shepherds, is obviously a very biblical uh, metaphor. And we're going to continue to use that here for the next couple of minutes. But um, I also want to encourage you. Here is King David, right? Uh, he has sinned. Now, this may have been with Bathsheba. It may have been another sin. We don't really know. But what does he do? He, he confesses. He recognizes that he has strayed. But then what does he do? He petitions Yahweh to seek him. It's okay to petition God to say, pursue me, Father. Abba, Father, pursue me. I just want to encourage us, each one of us, we stray. We break our uh, covenant with God. We break our personal covenant. We, we fall out of uh, relationship in a, in a righteous way, not in a... Um, holistic way, but, but we, we sin and we need to repent and we need to be restored again. And that's where David is at in this. And in that process, I just want to encourage us all to call out and say, seek me, Father. Seek me. And, and that's a biblical prayer that we can offer. All right, so now let's skip over to Ezekiel. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about this sheep metaphor and if you can keep up with me on the Bible, you're doing a great job. So Ezekiel 34, it's a uh, chapter that the first half, Yahweh, God, is chastising the leaders of Israel for not shepherding his flock, for actually doing everything wrong when it comes to leading his people. And then he says this, starting in verse 11, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in the good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Now, we know this I that he's talking about is fulfilled in the new covenant. So who is I? It's Christ, right? That's, if you ever get Bible, right? You always answer Jesus. Jesus is always the right answer. So that's who Ezekiel's actually prophesying about that. And that, that's uh, what Jesus' role is, right? And we, we see that. So let's go to the New Testament now and see some examples of the, that in the Gospels. So we're going to start in Luke, chapter 15, and 
we're going to read just uh, the parable of the lost sheep, but in these, this chapter, Luke puts three different parables, and each one of them is about pursuing, right? He's pr- pursuing a sheep, he's pr- pursuing a coin, and he's pursuing the lost son, right? So again, that theme is prevalent through, through the Gospels, through the Bible, about how God works. So starting at uh, 15, verse 4, suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now just remember as we're reading this, Ezekiel 38, 11 and following, what, what Ezekiel prophesied that God would do himself. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And then Jesus gives us a little little window into heaven. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So where's God's heart? His heart never leaves the 99. Don't don't mistake the the parable. He's always with the 99. But he's going to pursue that lost sheep. Okay? So then skip over to uh, chapter 19. And uh, I'm going to read 9 and 10. But in essence, verse 10 is really the theme um, by most commentators of Luke. Jesus said to them, today salvation has come to this house. This was in the Zacchaeus narrative. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. He's a pursuer, right? Our Savior, our Lord, our King is a pursuer. And I don't think we think of him that way very much. And I think we need to. The last one I want to look at, then we'll move on from this, is John 10. So John devotes a whole chapter, Jesus' teaching about the shepherd and the flock and all of that. I'm only going to focus on one part of that. So John 10, 25 through 30. And, And this is his commitment. So we've talked about who's doing it. We've talked about his heart and the process. And now it's kind of the commitment that God himself declares. I did tell you, Jesus says, but you did not believe me. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you did not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus declares no one can snatch them out of his hand. And then verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Brothers and sisters, you cannot be said more strongly. You cannot get lost. He will find you. You will never leave the comfort, the protection of his hand. And we have to encourage one another and personally remember that. These are, these are wonderful promises, but they are beyond a promise. They are a reality. 
This is, this is the creator God. And everything that he speaks happens. Without, without that, we wouldn't be existing. I mean, there wouldn't be integrity in the Bible, but beyond that, there wouldn't be integrity in the Godhead. And so these verses we can cling to in our darkest moments and our deepest moments. Okay, so God pursues us. We have uh, looked at both his affections now, and we've looked at his program, his purpose. Um, let's now give you the second piece of the puzzle, and it's this pursuit that God, through his affections, pursues us with a purpose. Okay, so that's the second piece of the puzzle. So the first piece was the plan. The second piece is this pursuit of his affections with us. Now we're going to move a lot faster, so it's going to be easier from here on out. So um, looking back through the Old Testament, how do we track this idea of pursuit and where we're headed in this sermon? Well, we have to start at the beginning. We have to start at Genesis 1. So what those of you that know the Bible, because we're not going to look any of these up, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, what happens in that section of text? Somebody. God creates man in what way? In his image. In male and female, he creates them. That sets up the rest of the redemptive program. That sets up the kingdom. That sets up everything else in the Bible. It sets up Jesus. It sets up the cross. It sets up everything. The fact that we, humanity, are made in the image of God is the third piece of the puzzle. The fourth piece is the Abrahamic covenant. So I'm going to say this is in... Genesis, or Genesis 12 or 17, um, verses 4, it's in three different places, but we'll choose the last one in 17. Um, and I'm just going to summarize it. He offers Abraham people. He asks, offers Abraham a land, and he offers Abraham a king or kings. So I'm going to summarize that in the kingdom of God. So for me, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's prepared place under God's rule. So anywhere, anytime in the Bible you have those three things, you have the kingdom of God. God's people and God's prepared place under God's rule. Okay, so that's the next piece of the puzzle. The fifth piece, I believe, is that, is that right? Fourth or fifth? Uh, is the Mosaic Covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant, what I want to take away from that one, it's, this is going to be Exodus 6. Verse, primarily verse 7, but verses 6 through 8, there's this, this mantra, this theme that permeates the whole Bible, actually. Um, it's, I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is something that is on God's heart. It's on God's heart from day one, because that's what was realized in the Garden of Eden before the fall. And then everything that he did with Abraham onward, covenant-wise, was set up so this could happen. And ultimately, the new covenant creates this. 
I will be their people, or they will be my people, and I will be their God, right? In a sense, if you go back and remember Ephesians 1, that's exactly what he was asking for. He wanted sons and daughters, right? He wanted a family. He wants to dwell with people. He wants to dwell with his people. And it, this is finally realized, and you don't need to turn there, but in Revelation 21, so when the new Jerusalem comes down, this is after the new heavens and the new earth, 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, he being God. They will be his people, and God himself will be there, and he will be their God. So finally, at the end of history, this, this ideology, this, this theme, this vision of God is finally realized. And we, those that are the sons and daughters of God, will be there. Again, we're guaranteed, based on what we read in John, no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. And if we looked in John 6, it would, Jesus would say, I will raise them up on the last day. It's very emphatic. We are, again, we're guaranteed to be here in Revelation 21. So that's the fourth, fifth piece of the puzzle. The sixth piece is the next covenant, which, does anybody know what the next covenant is chronologically? 2 Samuel 7. Davidic, yes. Davidic covenant, which is basically an eternal kingdom. It's an eternal throne. So from David's line, there will rise up, God will rise up an eternal king of all the universe. So, those now are six pieces of the puzzle. The last piece is a question. What is the most profound part of the gospel, the Christian gospel? And you can stew on that a little bit. Um, I'm going to read you a quote from a guy by the name of J.I. Packer in his famous book, Knowing God. So some of you are probably familiar with that book. Um, but I'll read you his response to that question. But that, that question is the seventh piece of the puzzle. So let me refresh your memory on all of these different puzzle pieces. Number one, you know what it is? What was the first puzzle piece? Cosmic gospel. Number two, God sets his affections on his children. Piece three, the image of God. Piece four, kingdom of God. Piece five, I will be their God and they will be my people. Piece six, the Davidic throne, the eternal king. And then seven is what is the most profound part of the gospel. So, does anybody want to make a chance response? What do we, what do we, what's the response to the question and or it is the image that we're trying to create? And then this is a hard, based on what I've given you. You can't read my mind. Okay, so we'll just go with it. Um, but putting all these things together basically is the climax that the, the the epiphany, if you will, of the whole idea 
of God pursuing us. Everything else that we realize in the gospel is built on this foundation. And the, the answer is what we're celebrating. It's the incarnation. Incarnation really is the foundational plank, the most profound reality of all of the gospel message. The divine conception, the perfect life, the sinless life, the miracles, the teachings, the, the cross, the death, the entombment, the resurrection, the ascension, the ruling of Jesus, all are more palatable to our minds, our finite minds, to understand this infinite plan with the idea that the second person of the Trinity somehow in God's economy became flesh. And in one person held his divine nature and human nature simultaneously in unison. And he will be that way forevermore. And knowing that, now not that we can comprehend it, not that we can understand it, but knowing that fact allows us really to believe, yeah, I can see where there was a divine conception. Yeah, I can see he had to die and he alone could handle the atonement. Yeah, I can see he will be raised. Yeah, I can see him. All these things make more sense based on this idea of the God-man. Without this God-man concept, we would have a hard time not only believing those other things, but much less evangelizing those other things. So this idea of the God-man is unique. Those of you that know world religions or world philosophies or other, other cultures, there is nothing like it. It is what sets Christianity apart, and it is what we commit our eternity to, right? If, if this isn't true, then we don't have an eternity. It's just that simple. So let me read one more thing, and then I'll read you J.I. Packer's response. So Hebrews 2, kind of hits this home on a more practical level. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. For this reason, he, Jesus Christ, had to be made like his brothers, that would be us humans, in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement or propitiation for the sins of his people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, those of you that know your Bible, you know, you know the the whole theology of blood and that a life for a life and sacrifice was built on that whole concept. And yet, if the Messiah wasn't a man, his blood wouldn't have atoned for our sins. So, so the revelation that I want to leave you with is that before the Godhead created, the God-man was thought up. And all of the church was the focus of this plan. And as he moves us towards his second coming, his, 
his closing up of this part of human history. Um, we have been pursued. We are part of that plan. And it is not in, in any sense an accident. Now, I don't want to over, I don't want to get into the sovereignty versus free will. This is, this is God's realm, not our realm. And we submit to that. But you are, you are chosen. And he has set his affections on you. And it was for these purposes that are far beyond our understanding. So what does is, what is J.I. Packer say? He says this, here are two mysteries for the price of one, the plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of the Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas, the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of a Christian revelation lie. And a little bit later he says, and there was no illusion or deception in this. The boyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. All right, so I want to close with basically four things. And three of them will have um, an illustration. So the first is to reinforce, again, this John 10 uh, statement and Ephesians 1 statement that God is not going to let his church, he is not going to let you, he is not going to let heritage fail. He won't. Brothers and sisters, he will not. So Haddon Robinson is a very famous teacher and scholar and homiletic guy. He teaches homiletics. He's a great preacher, one of the best preachers in our time. And he says this about a, a time he was preaching um, on uh, Jesus calming the storm. For one message based on the story of Christ calming the storm, I began my study assuming my sermon's main idea would be that we can count on Christ to calm the wind and waves in our lives. But as I studied the text, uh, I realized I couldn't promise people they would never sink just because Christ was with them in the storms of life. This passage has to be seen in its broader context. Jesus was called the disciples, or Jesus has called the disciples, and told them about the nature of his kingdom. It will start small but spread wide. In that early stage, everything depended on the men in that boat, Jesus and the disciples. If they go under, the kingdom is gone. The point of the passage is that those who have committed everything to Christ's cause can know that the kingdom will ultimately triumph because of the power of the king. This is an eternal truth that shifts the emphasis from the personal storms in my life and whether I will sink to the eternal kingdom that will never fail. And, and brothers and sisters, it's not easy, but we, we can do it. We can shift our eyes from our trials and our pain, and we can look up, and we can see the eternal. Those things will not be defeated. So God is not going to let us fail. Second point I want to make, we must persevere. And the example I'm using here is an athletic one. Um, there's a guy by the name of John Aquara, and he was competing in the 1968 Olympics in the marathon uh, event. 
in Mexico City, and he cramped up due to the high altitude in the city. He had not trained at such a high altitude, and at the 19-kilometer point, there was a bunch of jockeying for positions, and he got pushed and he fell down. He hit, uh, landed on his knee, dislocated his knee, um, fell on his shoulder, messed up his shoulder really bad. And so he was in a lot of severe pain. Um, but he got up and he continued the race and finished last among the 57 finishers. There were 75 that started, but he was one of the ones that finished. He was the last one to finish. The winner ran it in two hours and 20 minutes. John finished in three hours and 25 minutes. When he finally crossed the finish line, there was a small crowd left and they cheered. And when he was interviewed later and asked why he continued to run, he said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. So I commend us, brothers and sisters, in, in our trials, in our plights, finish the race, persevere, help one another, encourage one another. <laughs> Jeremy and I have been doing that a lot lately in the last couple of weeks. We will, we will finish the race. And then third, we will find God. God is a God that wants to be found. He doesn't hide himself. And so this is kind of a cute illustration to end on a little bit of a positive smile note. Guy, a pastor by the name of Rick Ezel, who's a Baptist pastor, um, writes this. So he's talking about the hide-and-seek game. So better than hide-and-seek, I like the game called sardines. Has anybody heard of the game called sardines? Oh, okay. So it's real. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. In sardines, the person who is it goes and hides, and then everyone else looks for him or her. When you find him, you get in with him and hide with him. And pretty soon... You have all these stacked people on one another, just like a bunch of big puppies that are in a, this big pile. And then eventually someone starts giggling and then starts laughing, and then everybody gets found because there's so much laughter on the, on the huddle. Okay, so this is a real game. I didn't know this. Okay, <clears throat> so he, he continues. Medieval theologians even described God in hide-and-seek terms, calling him dos ascondist, which is hidden God in Latin. But me, Rick, I think God as a sardine player. And we'll be found the same way everybody gets found in sardines, by the sound of laughter heaped together at the end. Never was that more true than the first Christmas. God came to the neighborhood not to play hide and seek. He came to play sardines. And the first to find him outside his family were the shepherds. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. The Savior was out in the open for the whole world to behold. God wants to be found. That's what the Christmas is all about. So my question to you is, have you found the Savior? Have you found the God-man? Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for pursuing us. We thank you for your plan, and we thank you for bringing us into that plan and giving us enough words and enough mind to be able to comprehend it so that we can commit ourselves to it, so that we can be your tools in it, so that we can end up 
in the new heavens and the new earth with you as our God and, and us as your people and Jesus as our King, Father. It's beyond our comprehension, but we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love, and we thank you for Jesus. Amen.